those situations, but he is very blunt with how he represents other positions. So, yeah, at, as we'll get into when we start to talk about the, the situation here, what's going down. Okay, so let's get started. It is Wednesday, and usually I'll do, from now on, I want to do a Thursday night live stream um, weekly. I think a Saturday night live stream would be cool, too. Just uh, whatever's on my mind, kind of shooting from the hip. Not not anything too in detail like I do on my Friday uh, disputed questions videos. Just to kind of talk over, have something like 20, 30 minutes long. You know, just why not? Just whatever I've been reading about, whatever I've been thinking about uh, recently. Just I think that'd be fun. So uh, tonight we're going to be discussing uh, the perpetual version. Uh, perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Reformed Catholic hermeneutics, and James White kind of discussed that whole situation. So getting into the situation, I'll introduce it for anybody who's not familiar with why exactly I'm talking about James White. So he mentioned me in one of his live streams. This was yesterday, October 11th, I believe. He mentioned me and uh, because Matthew from from Twitter. I won't give his last name because I don't know if he wants me to dox him or anything. So uh, Matthew, he had posted, this was, this was, must've been a month ago. This was a while ago that he was from the influence of some of the stuff I've written and a video that I made that he was starting to believe in the perpetual virginity of the blessed Virgin Mary and a, as a Protestant. And this got a lot of like likes and shares and comments. And eventually James White uh, saw the tweet and he commented about, you know, the proto-evangelium of James and uh, and the, the typical argument that he's going to give. That's what he commented against against Matthew. And uh, somebody else uh, sent him, com commented and replied to him. And sent the video that I had made that convinced Matthew. And little did I know, he actually queued that video up and he listened to it. Um, and then came back to it yesterday in his live stream and made th this. This was only like five minutes in his live stream. It wasn't like he made a whole video about me. But he mentioned that I was going against history and plain scripture. So then I posted a tweet about it. I I believe at least I was very charitable. I thanked him for his work because, you know, I he he kind of um, was one of my first teachers in the faith uh, learning theology. So I, I'm very appreciative of his work. But I said that I didn't find his argument too convincing on, on this matter, at least. There's a lot of stuff I, I really enjoy that he produces, and I still watch him pretty often. And then he, this morning, this morning, he replied to one of my tweets, and he said, and I shall, if time allows, be using your presentation as an example of how to turn history on its head and how to reverse the flow of biblical argument. So I found your argument deeply flawed, not just unconvincing. So... I was trying to be as nice as I could, but I mean, he's uh, 
he's he he jokes about this, so I'm not being mean here. But he's a little he, he's a different generation than than us. He's a little bit older, so it, what comes across rude and blunt to us might just it, it is just the way that a lot of people of his generation talk about this sort of stuff in the heat of polemics. But I'm not going to impute any uh, uncharitable behavior to him or anything like that, or, or, or impute any, any sinful behavior on his part. That, that's just how he, he talks. And if you listen to him enough, you realize that's the way that Dr. White goes, goes about things when he disagrees with somebody. And I mean, th that's not the way I, I go. I, I go about it. I go about it like that sometimes, but that's not the way that I, I prefer to present myself because it makes me look bad. Uh, people, I, I don't want to be an Anglican J. Dyer. I hope Jay Dyer doesn't watch this video because then, then we're all screwed because he'll he'll go after me for making that comparison. Okay, so the reason I wanted to talk to you guys is I wanted to get into get, get away from the specific hermeneutical questions and historical questions of the earliest fathers and the uh, the way that the Protoevangelium of James might have um might have influenced uh, the, the history of theology and i wanted to get into a more presuppositional way of going about this go back to our first principles and because i believe this is going to be a much much better way of of going about things because if james white if if dr white and i just throw verses at each other and throw interpretations at each other and say, no, I'm right. No, you're, you're wrong. And that that's going to get nothing done. And I think that a much more effective way of going about this is to look at what our interpretive standard is, is do we have any authority over us in the way in which we interpret scripture? Are we just, is it just us and the Holy ghost under a tree interpreting scripture like it's not contextualized in historical theology. And Dr. White actually makes a big point in this when he argues with people like uh, like Steven Anderson. When he argues with people like that, he's going to make the point explicit that that's not the way he does theology. So I want to hold him to that standard of having interpretive authorities where you are not the sole infallible interpreter of scripture but there's going to be others who are going to hold you to uh, hold you to certain dogmatic uh, statements of fact, such as the Nicene Creed. That is a dogmatic statement of fact that nobody can disagree with without being a heretic or the Apostles Creed. And, and, and it's a very restricted group of doctrines. And the, the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary is one of those doctrines that have, has received ecumenical support and has been very uncontested in the history of the church, which is one of the clear markers that something is a truly Catholic teaching. There is a true consensus patrum on this issue, and it's not something that you can just uh, just throw away and and be done with it. So. So he believes that he comes to the text as one interpreter among many, where I believe I come to the text as an interpreter of the Catholic faith. Therefore, I come to the text with certain presuppositions that I'm going to make explicit, which is going to be the creeds and it's going to be ecumenical councils. And I affirm all seven just as 
just as a note. So this is going to be more of an apologetic for the reason why I have those presuppositions and the reason that the perpetual virginity of Blessed Virgin Mary is within one of those presupp is one of those presuppositions that I hold. And it's going to be an argument why we have to have those presuppositions as an interpreter of scripture if we're not going to just uh, just fall into the error of a lot of modern evangelicalism in a perversion of the principle of sola scriptura, although I don't like to use that term because of the various perversions that there are. So we have to affirm what, what I call a reformed Catholic uh, prolegomena. And I, I lay this out more in detail in my North American Anglican article that I wrote, a Catholic, uh, a Catholic Anglican uh, rule of faith. So the reformers believed that they were preaching the true ancient and Catholic faith. If this is found to be untrue, then the re then reformation is needed. But in this case, this is not found to be true because the the true ancient and Catholic faith agreed upon in the councils and among all of the fathers is going to support the perpetual virginity of Our Lady. We're to preach not the traditions of men, but we're to preach the church's tradition. We're to preach the Catholic deposit that we've been given. So whatever passes the sniff test of the rule of St. Vincent was accepted as a true interpretation of scripture among the reformers. It is important to remember that this is not a separate stream from scripture, but it's, it is hermeneutical tradition. So there's two examples that I'm gonna put forward of this principle of having a hermeneutical tradition in a reformed Catholic prolegomena. So the first is going to be in John 3, that very uh, disputed text when it comes to being born of the water and of the spirit. What does it mean to be born of the water? Now, in early baptismal rites and among the fathers who interpret this phrase, it is referring to baptism very clearly, in fact. This is a very strong tradition when it comes to the interpretation of a difficult text. So I would say that since the Holy Spirit in illumining, in illumining the church has, has supported that reading of text much stronger than any other reading of the text, then we ought to submit our interpretation when it comes to, uh, it comes to what the Holy Spirit has illuminated within the church. So another example is, is uh, found in, it, but also he would not deny that. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's, I, I'm not sure about Dr. White's interpretation of John 3. So another example of this is going to be in Malachi, when it talks to talks about a pure offering is being presented in all the world. And it's talking about with the sacrificial language of, of altars around the world and sacrifices and offerings on these altars. That refers to the Holy Eucharist. And the reason that we come to that conclusion, it could be referring to many other things. It could be referring to uh, prayer. It could be referring to uh, an, a number of different different interpretations. But Malachi 1.11, but there's a very strong interpretive um, tradition as, as, as early as, the, I believe, the decay, and then also for sure Justin Martyr, St. Justin Martyr, where this text is interpreted in reference to the Holy Eucharist. So these difficult texts are solved 
by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit in bringing the church to certain consensus on these issues. And now I know I'm going to be um, accused of Romanism, but this is completely different because a lot of distinctively Roman doctrines, the church has not had a consensus on them. And that is the exact reason why we're arguing against Rome, because Rome isn't Catholic enough. If you look at uh, St. John Henry Newman's Via Media, where he wrote about this, he is his critique of the Roman church before he became Roman Catholic was to say that the Roman church had an over-exaggeration of the apostolic deposit. They went too far and they broke the Catholic faith that had been handed down to them in the consensus of the fathers everywhere and at all times and by all people. It's not that they were too Catholic, it's that they were not Catholic enough. And this is the reformed principle of interpreting scripture. So let's get into um, the Bishop John Jewell in, in writing against the the Roman Catholic Church. He writes further, if we do show it plainly that God's holy gospel, the ancient bishops and the primitive church do make on our side, and that we have not without just cause left these men, and rather have returned to the apostles and old Catholic fathers, and if we shall be found to do the same not colorably or craftily, but in good faith before God, truly, honestly, clearly, and plainly, and if they themselves which fly our doctrine and would be called Catholics manifestly see how all these titles of antiquity, whereof they boast so much, are quite shaken out of their hands, and that there is more pith in this our cause than they thought for. We then hope and trust that none of them be so negligent and careless of his own salvation, but he will at length study and bethink himself to what their part he were best to join him. So what Bishop John Jewell is saying is that the reason for the Reformation that happened wasn't because, wasn't because Rome was um, Rome was agreeing with the early church and the consensus of the fathers too much. But John Jewell is claiming for himself in the Reformed hermeneutic, the Reformed Catholic hermeneutic, that he has the consen consensus of the church and of the, the ancient church and of the fathers, that he has Catholic consensus. So you can't claim semper reformanda. You can't claim that you are furthering the reformation by denying the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because in order to continue the reformation, in order to reform the church, what you have to ask yourself, what are we reforming to? You're reforming back to scripture and you're reforming back to the ancient church. And you cannot claim that you're reforming back to the ancient church while denying the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So if you are going to fly to your personal vision of the teaching over the Catholic faith, that is to corrupt the reformers visions, not to complete it. Even the homily against the peril of idolatry which is one of the Anglican homilies, states the doctrine shall be declared both by God's word and the sentences of the ancient doctors in judgment of the primitive church. So you have first the word of God. Second, you have the ancient doctors of the church. So you have the church fathers. And third, you have the judgment of the primitive church, which is going to come in the form of the councils of the church. So the individualistic regular fide that Dr. White is employing here is merely a perversion of the principle of sola scriptura, removing all interpretive authority. This approach of continuous, continuously reinventing the wheel is neither reformed nor Catholic nor reasonable.
So James, Dr. White often speaks of the Roman view of interpretive authority as sola ecclesia. And it is impossible by his standard of interpretive authority to not regulate himself to teaching sola James White. It is impossible because he is changing the Roman magisterium of being the interpreter of scripture to himself being the sole interpreter of scripture. So this principle of interpretation is foreign to the reformers. So the Lutheran divine Martin Chemnitz condemns it, commenting, quote, this is also certain that no one should rely on his own wisdom in the interpretation of the scripture, not even in clear passages. So notice, Dr. White says this is a clear passage. We also gratefully and reverently use the labor of the fathers who by their commentaries have profitably clarified many passages of scripture. And we confess that we are greatly confirmed by the testimonies of the ancient church and the true and sound understanding of scripture. So now get, get this. This is where Cheminence just, just drills it in. Nor do we approve of it if someone invents for himself a meaning which conflicts with all antiquity and for which there is no clearly, which there are clearly no testimonies of the church. So what is Dr. White doing here? Of course, does he fall under the condemnation of Chemnitz? Yes, he does. He, what he is doing is he is inventing for himself a meaning that conflicts with all antiquity and for which there's no clear testimonies of the church. That is what he's doing in condemning uh, the doctrine of Semper Virgo. He is going against the testimonies of antiquity and of the ancient church. So he cannot claim any sort of continuity with the principle of sola scriptura, which he rightly has debated Roman Catholics over the year on. He is being inconsistent, which inconsistency is the, is the sign of a failed argument. He's being inconsistent with Reformation principles on what exactly sola scriptura is when it comes to who is the guide in interpretive authority over you. And they make it clear over and over and over again. It's the judgment of the primitive church, and it's the ancient doctors of the church. And both of those and their interpretation of scripture are going to fall on my side of this debate. So let's take some examples. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply this to, to two passages, which are often brought up in the Semper Virgo debate. And I'm going to apply these principles and, and show how Dr. White is being inconsistent here. So first, there's the mention of brothers. So often when people debate against the, um, the perpetual virginity of Mary, Dr. White uh, does this very often, is they pull up the brothers passages where Jesus is mentioned as having brothers. Notice Mary's never mentioned as having children besides Jesus, but we'll, we'll get to that later. So there's multiple different ways in which the word brothers can be interpreted. There's a large semantic domain of the word brothers. Everybody has to admit this. So brothers could mean those born of Joseph and Mary, which is going to be Dr. White's interpretation. Brothers could mean those born of Joseph alone. So stepbrothers. Brothers could refer to close kinsmen. Brothers could refer to spiritual brothers. There is multiple different ways in which we use the word brother. So how are we to interpret it? Now, I'll admit, I will admit this. The most likely interpretation, the most straightforward interpretation of these passages is going to be children of Joseph and Mary. In any other context, 
if we referred to my brothers, the most straightforward way of interpreting that is going to be as biological, full, and complete brothers. But you have to admit that either of these is a valid interpretation. There is the possibility of both of these, of uh, either of these being the valid, there's only one valid interpretation, but either of these could be a valid interpretation. So what is going to be the arbiter of this? What are we going to, what are we going to submit to when it comes to submitting our intellect to uh, better interpreters of ours? Because either is possible, really either is possible. So how are we going to get out of this epistemological mess? Where are we going to go? If you're reading the reformers, where you're going to go is you're going to go to the sentences of the ancient church. You're going to look at the consensus of Catholic theologians. You're going to look at what the church and their councils have dogmatized. But if you're following James White, where you're going to go is James White. That's it. And you're stuck in this loop because either what, what am I supposed to do as an interpreter? What are you supposed to do as an interpreter? Is it wiser for you to go and listen to James White? And that is your final authority on this matter. Or are you going to go, as the reformers themselves stated, this isn't even quoting the medievals or the fathers. As the reformers themselves stated, the sentences of the holy doctors of the ancient church and judgment of the primitive church. That is where you go when you have questions like these. And now, admittedly, there are actually a very uh, select there's a very select um, grouping of doctrines where you can do this with, where you have to bring dogmatic presuppositions to the text. For example, when um, Jesus is referred to as the son of God, admittedly, it is a possible interpretation when Jesus is referred to as the son of God as being just a normal man because other people are referred to as sons of God. But we bring a certain dogmatic presupposition to the text when it comes to the judgment of the Nicene Council. And honestly, and this is gonna, this is gonna really make uh, some people angry, but honestly, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary is probably clearer to the fathers than even the judgment of the Nicene Council, because you're having a lot of messiness and a lot of defecting in the ancient church over the question of the Lord's uh, complete divinity. But when it comes to the perpetual virginity, what do you have, Helvidius? That's about it. And you have maybe a few sentences out of Tertullian, maybe, which Ovidius pointed back to. And then you have you have um, then you have St. Jerome pointing back to all of these late first and second century fathers who are disagreeing with Tertullian's interpretation. So so that's now let's go to let's go to the, the second text where we can do this with. And this is going to be a text of my favorite. So this is going to be the, the how, can it, how can it be text, where the angel Gabriel comes to the Blessed Virgin Mary, comes to Our Lady, and says, you're going to be pregnant, you're going to have a child. And she says, how can this be? Now, there's two ways of interpreting this. The first way, which is the correct way, the way that I interpret it, and the way that the ancient church interprets it, is the fact that the reason that Mary is so incredibly shocked is because she wasn't planning on having sexual activity. That is the straightforward reading of the text. That is the easiest reason reading to get by. Not that the only reading of the text, 
No, of course, Dr. White has an interpretation of the text as her being shocked at something else. Now, that is a possible reading of the text. She could have been shocked by the fact that there was an angel in front of her, and that just has nothing to do with the statement the angel made before. That's a hard reading, but it is a very slightly possible reading. You have both of these. Now, I come with my dogmatic presuppositions to the text, and he comes with his dogmatic presuppositions to the text, which is that his interpretation is right. So I go back to the ancient fathers. I go back to the, ancient, the judgment of the ancient councils and what the ancient church said about this. And what I come out with is that this is referring to a certain vow of virginity that Our Lady took, which, ref which can be deduced from that as being a, um, as referring to, as teaching that she was a perpetual vir virgin in the rest of her life. So that is, uh, now I'm going to get into the dogmatic statements on the perpetual virginity. So, um, because the objection might be, well, you have, you have a few of these ancient doctors that you can quote. You have St. Jerome, you have St. Augustine, you have St. Jerome about earlier fathers. But I, I don't really believe you about there being dogmatic statements about this. I don't think the primitive church made, made judgments about this. But if you go to the Fifth Ecumenical Council at Constantinople, Constantinople II, it says, if anyone shall not confess that the word of God has two nativities, the one from all eternity of the Father, without time and without body, the other in these last days coming down from heaven and being made flesh of the holy and glorious Mary, mother of God, and always a virgin. Always a virgin. Semper Virgo is being, is being taught in... In, in this ecumenical council throughout the entire thing. You see it, you, all you need to do is search the text of the canons and the, and the definition of the fifth ecumenical council and over and over and over again, you get her described as being Semper Virgo, as being a perpetual virgin. Okay, I think that's all I got. So let's see if, I'm, I'm gonna look through the stream and see if there's anything, anything good up in here. Oh, oh John Fisher 2.0 is here, great. Um, not don't kill me or you scared me yeah it is like it's crazy i kind of for my original video i wish i could find it but i don't have it right now i listed each one of the major reformers who who taught the doctrine of semper virgo and it's it's literally all of them all the way from from Louis, from Wycliffe in the pre-Reformation era, all the way to John Wesley, and it's it's just there's such a consensus among amongst Protestant doctors and amongst the early church and the medieval church. Like this shouldn't even be a question. I shouldn't be having to make this video because it is just that crystal clear when it comes to uh, when it comes to the dogmatic teaching of the Catholic Church and even the Protestant Church. Even you get in the um, I don't know if you know about this. John Fisher 2.0, but yeah, he would have had him stoned for more reasons than that. He, actually, he wouldn't have had him stoned. He would have gave him his third baptism. I don't know if you know that joke, but um, what was I saying? Nah, I don't even remember. What I, oh yeah, the second Helvetic confession. So you get in one of the Protestant confessional documents called the second Helvetic confession. Uh, I believe that was written by Fran Francis Turretin himself, the fantastic reformed scholastics. It calls the Blessed Virgin Mary, it calls Our Lady Semper Virgo. And that language of, actually that language 
just off topic, might as well. It's a live stream, I can talk about whatever I want. But Our Lady, the, the term Our Lady is actually used among plenty of plenty of the reform. Like I was reading uh, Thomas Cranmer uh, on something, I think it was on the Eucharist, and he happened to just use the term Our Lady. And I was saying, some of the some more of the reformers and they were using the language of our lady and they used the language of pure virgin of even even um i think it was bullinger earlier in his ministry taught the assumption of the blessed virgin mary it's just you get crazy high marian dot uh marian teachings because i mean it's the mother of god like you aren't going to talk bad about the mother of god but apparently protestants feel like they have a license to talk bad about our lady these days so we need to be defenders of Our Lady. Okay, so James, who is the first to cast aspiration about the doctrine of Reformation? Uh, no, it was um, it was actually uh, I think his name is Helvetius, and then Jovinius, some, something like that. Weird weird names. But if you look on a New Advent and you look at a defense of the perpetual virginity of Our Lady by Saint Jerome. St. Jerome is, is fighting uh, these guys because in the late fourth century, you get a few people questioning it and St. Jerome just wrecks them. And then you have St. Ambrose of Milan who has the Synod of Milan and wrecks them and teaches perpetual virginity in part two. You get in the fourth century, St. Ambrose teaching that during the birth, Mary, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary kept the physical markers of virginity. Like this is just crazy early stuff. And before I... I uh, researched for that article that I wrote. Gosh, this must have been a really long time ago. Six months. That's not a really long time. But when I wrote that article six months ago and I was I was reading on this and I was reading uh, some of the, the teachings of the fathers, I didn't know that virginity in part two was that early of a doctrine because you'll get uh, Dr. White uh, saying that in part two is a Gnostic, is Gnostic teaching and nonsense like that. Because that it, it just doesn't make sense. You have the uh, Proto-Evangelium of James, late second century. You're teaching on the virginity of Mary before then, which is seen in, in, in Jerome's citations. And then apparently the Proto-Evangelium of James isn't valid at all as a historical resource. Like I could see you questioning its theology, but it, if anything, it is historical historical resource. And all these fathers who were violently fighting against the Gnostics apparently just fell into rank Gnosticism, I guess. Just doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. Yeah, Cranmer. The Ezekiel, uh, he goes through, I, I think it's, he goes through, the Lord goes through a door and nobody shall go in after him or something like that. I think that's the text. Yeah, condemn those to hell that reject it. Yeah, that it because if you think about it, like I quoted it at the end of one of the articles I wrote on this, is you have multiple fathers actually who took the took Semper Virgo so seriously that they were calling the people who uh, went against it blasphemers, heretics, anathematizing them, like telling them they're going to go to hell. Like you, you have some serious words. Like you're just they're, they're just calling you disgusting and just gross. And if you want a patristic mindset about Our Lady, then that's how you should respond to those that deny the perpetual virginity of Our Lady. 
like this isn't uh this isn't a joke this isn't uh just a light doctrine like they were taking this stuff seriously like if you denied it they were gonna they weren't gonna mince words for you okay james i know about those guys but i mean after the reformation we said all the reformers held to the doctrine sorry for that uh after the reformation um so you're gonna have two streams within reform thought everybody is gonna going to accept the doctrine you get uh first first stream you have guys like calvin who were very moderate in their uh in the in their acceptance of semper virgo they're gonna talk about how semper virgo is true and it's obviously true but since it's not explicitly tra- taught in scripture and it's implicit and by deduction and it's from uh, typological arguments arguments from fittingness and arguments from history which aren't explicit explicit statements of scripture and he couldn't bind people's consciences by that doctrine and then you have a second stream who just held the classical view of yeah you should believe it and we're going to confessionalize it and we're going to bind your conscience by it and you better believe it or else but i can't i can't even think of the first person to deny it maybe if i had guess it would be during the era of the nonconformists in england because, I mean, obviously, there's probably like Socinians and, uh, and these various uh, weird heretical groups that arose during the Reformation that were denying it. But those that were within general orthodoxy and weren't anti-Trinitarian weirdo heretics denying it in like affirming that God had body parts and weird stuff like that. Um, I Probably in the Puritan era, if I had to guess. I mean, it's commonplace up into the 18th century. Like it, this, this isn't. This isn't anything that's really debated until really late part of Reformed Orthodoxy, when things start to fall apart. Like early in Reformed Orthodoxy, everybody was solidly holding to the perpetual virginity of Our Lady. Okay, any other questions, comments? Talk about anything you guys want. I'm here all night. Nope. Actually, I think it takes like 10 seconds to load. So I'm going to give it a second. Yeah, I hope that actually watches this and doesn't just put me off as one of weirdo Catholic heretics. You know, like John Fisher 2.0. Thoughts on the Annunciation? So what about the Annunciation? Oh, the Assumption. <laughs> The assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, that has been such a hard pill for me to swallow. Because, I mean, you'll get doctors in the third century talking about the assumption. Well, I'm not talking about the assumption explicitly. But they'll be saying things like, well, we don't know where she went. And honestly, the best thing that describes the historical data of there not being Marian relics at all. and and the eventual consensus that the church reaches on this matter and the feast of the dormition and stuff like that. The best explanation is going to be the assumption. That's the best explanation because how in the heck would the blessed Virgin Mary, who's obviously like, if you're Protestant or not, you have to admit that they held a very high regard for one relics. If you look in like the death of part. And then two of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So the Blessed Virgin Mary's relics are going to be like, not everybody's going to be killing each other for the Blessed Virgin Mary's relics. Uh, Our Lady's relics would have been just the most coveted things in Christendom. 
but uh, you don't have that. You don't have any tombs um, which are which have bones in them. You don't have any uh, records of death. You don't have a. Um, there's a lot of time when famous figures die. Like you have it for almost all of the apostles. You have these documents in the early church where they have martyrologies or or something like that, recording how these people died, even if they died peacefully. It's still recorded how they died. You get nothing like that on the Blessed Virgin Mary. So I think implicitly from the earlier church tradition before it becomes explicit in the 4th and 5th century, that what makes the most sense is just say that she was assumed. Uh, yeah, it seems strange how it is such a minority position among Protestants now. Yeah, it's just super sad. I mean, I think it has to do definitely with the shifting of of the way in which Protestants have read scripture and have read tradition is because before, I mean, if you're going to learn how to do theology, you're first going to have to read the, the Holy fathers. Like that's the way in which theology was done. Like if you read anything older than, than I don't know, probably two centuries, three centuries old, it's just going to be packed with patristics. Like that was the main thing. You look at those, of what is it, 120 responses against Cardinal Bellarmine? It's just packed with expectations. Now, there are some really weird ones, like um, like supporting, uh, denying baptismal regeneration in in uh, in Augustine and affirming the Reformed view of baptism in the Fathers. There's going to be weird interpretations like that. But, I mean, they saw the necessity that if you were going to prove a doctrine, it, it couldn't be a new doctrine. Like even like things like exclusive psalmody, like come on, exclusive psalmody is like one of the most obviously non-patristic doctrines out there that you can only sing the psalms in worship. But still, there's you'll get a lot of the Puritans fighting from the fathers that exclusive psalmody was was true. So thoughts on uh, no, what are your thoughts on Cardinal Manning? I I don't know who Cardinal Manning is. I'm sorry. So I don't really have any thoughts on Cardinal Manning. I saw you that earlier, but I have no idea who that is. Okay. Where are there no relics? Yeah. Not even obviously made up ones. There is um, the only first class relic that we have from Our Lady is a vial of her breast milk. Yeah. Uh, John Fisher might be able to, to <laughs> explain it to me when when I talk to him, I'll talk, I'll ask him about it later. Um, he might be able to explain why the breast milk of Our Lady is a is a um, a coveted relic. I think that's kind of weird. Yeah, Revelation twelve. And I mean, guys, like I, I do, I do struggle a little bit with Revelation twelve, uh, John Fisher. Um, and the reason is just because it's a very disputed passage. A lot of the fathers will interpret that as being being the church, but I mean, personally, it makes more sense that it's Our Lady. And either way, she's obviously the Queen of Heaven, and she's Our Lady, our Mother, our sweetness, and our hope. Um, okay, I think that's about it, unless something streams, and I'll give it like 10, 15 seconds. I think it's both. Yeah, because I mean, that would make sense that, uh, that Our Lady is is being because our because if you look in in typology like this is what i love about medieval biblical exegesis this is what i love about the way in which the fathers interpret scripture 
is it is super duper uh, typological. They're always looking for the way in which scripture is a coherent whole. And they're always looking for the ways in which you can apply the literal sense of scripture. And with the lady, she's a type of Eve, clearly. She's a she's the mother of the living. She's the mother of the the church, because we are Christ's brothers, and and she becomes our mother at, at, at salvation. And she's also a type of the church, the church herself, as uh, the both the mother of Christ and Christ's bride. In a certain sense, the, the daughter of Christ, too. You, you can have these, there's a certain Trinitarian pattern when you look at the way in which the Blessed Virgin Mary relates to, um, the way in which the Blessed Virgin Mary relates to the Trinity. You get the immaculate daughter of the Father, the spouse of the Holy Ghost, in the, in the uh, operation of the incarnation of Christ, and then the mother of God, uh, God, the second person of the Trinity. So on the on the breast milk question, my guess is that it's because in Scripture Jerusalem is spoken of as good breast milk of the faithful. I think she's a typology of Jerusalem, and that's why it's important. Yeah, I guess I guess it makes sense. But um, yeah, yeah, I actually I actually saw somebody post on this earlier because there's a famous picture of Saint Clairvaux, I believe it is, and it's it's the Blessed Virgin Mary and then Saint Bernard of Clairvaux and. Plus, Virgin Mary is squirting breast milk into his mouth, and I've always thought that was a very weird, um, a very weird picture. But I guess that's more of a of a cultural thing for us, is that we're it's um, it was a lot more desensitized back then. I mean, where are you going to go if you're if you're breastfeeding? Um, you're, you're not going to be able to have all the hiding mechanisms that we have today in order to keep covered up and to be. Um, and to be modest and to and to not show too much everybody you're not going to have that and it's going to be um a lot more of a postmodern natural biological thing rather than a than a weird thing especially when people are having like a million kids like nowadays the a lot of people are formula feeding you have the the breast pump you have uh, people only breastfeeding for a few months so it's like it's a very short window of somebody's life i mean in the the, the medieval and early church, you're going to have it almost all the time. It's going to be all around you, but it's just weird. It's still weird to me. Like, even, even though I can explain why it makes sense, it's still just really, really weird to me. Okay. So I think I'm going to edit that part out of the live stream <laughs> when I, when I post it, because that, I don't know. No, you know, I'll, I'll just leave it on. I feel like editing it out. Might as well. Okay. So anything else, guys? 50 minutes, not bad. Not bad at all. This was fun. Can't wait to, I'll be having a video come out Friday. Remember to become a patron, become one of my glorious patrons. You get get access to exclusive lectures. I'm actually, John Fisher 2.0, I'm actually going to be in the spring doing a few lectures on the papacy. Just, um, just trying to provide an apologetic from some of the reformed Orthodox and Tractarians who are arguing against the papacy. That'll be, that'll be fun. I might eventually just release it publicly, but not sure. Not sure. It's kind of just a, got to give the patrons some benefits, you know, then each time I uh, I'll start editing uh, and reprinting and republishing books. So if you become a patron, 
then you get for the for the for the book, first book that I'm re uh, releasing, Bishop Grafton, which will be done at the end of the year, is Introduction to Catholic Theology, uh, where I'm going to be editing some dogmatic texts. Uh, every patron of mine gets a free copy of it. And then in the future, you'll get digital copies. And I'm sure eventually I'll do a giveaway where maybe I'll, maybe each time I release a book in the future, I'll give a free hardcover to one of my patrons. I'll do a little random generator thingy. <laughs> Father James already gives me enough trouble over it. I know I've never, I've talked to him yeah, through through DMs and stuff. And I mean, we're, 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 uh, we're acquainted with one another, but I've never collaborated with him on anything before. So I think eventually we should we should do that. We could we could do something like that. Okay, I think that's. Uh, oh wait, wait. Podcast. I just came out with. Uh, I'm starting to release uh, audio stuff on my podcast. So if you if you're if you like podcast better, I the only thing exclusive to there is that I'm going to be reading a chapter of Bishop Grafton's theology each week and kind of releasing an audiobook series. And I'm gonna be I'm gonna be posting audio articles too. So every article I write, I'll, I'll record myself reading it, and then I'll I'll post that on the on the blog. So yeah, a lot of people like podcasts, so I figure I should do it. I mean, podcasts are much easier to monetize too. So uh, that's a that's a um, little hint, little marketing hint to anybody who's anyone monetize podcasts like youtube youtube ads it's like you'll get per thousand people watch it uh you'll probably get around two dollars three dollars if you're lucky some people get one dollar per thousand people who watch an ad for blog um if you get a good one it could be five to ten dollars per ad per person who, who watches it but for podcasts it's usually 25 to 30 dollars per per thousand people who watch it so any of you that want to monetize your stuff, that's that's the way to go. Okay, I think that is all. Yeah, for the time being, I'll be releasing like one podcast episode a day because I have to. I'm taking all of my stuff over from YouTube and putting it on the audio and and everything like that, just to have a little bit of a history, you know, put up a little base of stuff before I go down to three, two, three times a week, which is still a lot, but. It is what it is. Okay, you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye-bye.